The following presentation is brought to you by Perusia. Please stay tuned at the end for more information about the many fine resources available from Perusia. Well, good morning. I've been asked to speak about modesty and reverence. And I'm giving two presentations today. And the first one will be on restoring modesty. I think it's an incredibly important issue in, for us as Catholics, as Christians, for the church and for the world in general. I'll start with the definition of modesty that we'd find in, say, a normal dictionary. Modesty is the quality of not being too proud or confident about yourself or your abilities. That first definition of modesty reminds me a lot of humility. So basically, I would say that looking at this definition, modesty is a fruit of humility. Now, humility or to practice humility is to practice truth about ourselves. A simple definition of humility is truth, to speak about yourself truthfully, not to deny that you have skills or qualities or gifts, because then you'll be denying reality, but to give due glory and acknowledgement to God for what gifts you have, and to always pray to God that you use those gifts appropriately for his honour, his glory, in his service and in the service of others. So to be modest is to be humble. And to be humble is to be truthful. And so we, in, we live in truth when we acknowledge God as the source of all our goodness, all our skills, abilities and gifts and all our achievements. Not to praise ourselves as the source of whatever we might do in the world. But the other definition of modesty, which I want to speak on in more depth, is the propriety in dress, speech, or conduct. Proper, appropriate speech, dress, or conduct. Both of these parts of the definition of modesty, though, are very, very important for an authentic Christian, authentic Catholic life. And again, I earnestly say that we need these qualities, not only to be restored in ourselves, to be practiced by ourselves, to be preached about, to be taught, but to be restored in the world. I'm going to now turn to a few quotes from Scripture, from the New Testament, Uh, which exhort us, exhort believers to practice modesty in dress. And I first turn to St. Paul, then I'll refer to St. Peter. I'll just quote two quotes, but there are many others in Scripture as well. The first one is St. Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, this is a very, not only important quote, but one that needs a balanced interpretation. Is St. Paul saying here that having braided hair or wearing gold and pearls or jewellery is inappropriate for a Christian, inappropriate for a Christian woman? No, he's not saying that. It's a matter of where he's placing the emphasis that, okay, the first point, we need to dress modestly. That means with a proper level of cover. Or veiling. And when I mean veiling, I don't mean simply of the head or the hair. 
a proper level of covering. And I'll come back to that point and develop that point in more detail soon. But what St. Paul is really saying here, and it's not just a message for women, by the way, it's a message equally important, valid and necessary for men, that we are to dress ourselves with virtue and what comes from holiness. That is the mark, that is the dress of an authentic Christian. 1 Peter 3, 3 to 4, very much echoes what I've just read from St. Paul's letter to St. Timothy. In fact, I'm sure scholars looking at these two verses would probably suggest that St. Peter had read St. Paul's letter to St. Timothy and maybe imported the, the same ideas into his universal epistle. St. Peter says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So again, it's a matter of emphasis. And again, I repeat, it's okay as a Christian to wear jewellery, to dress well, to be elegant, to appear to be beautiful. I think that's a wonderful thing. The differences between men and women in appearance are derived from God in his plan for man and woman, the mystery of man and woman, and the need for men and women to be different in order for them to be attractive to each other, to complete each other. But again, the main point here of St. Peter is the same as St. Paul's core point. The Christian is to be dressed in virtue as fruits of the Holy Spirit. That is the mark of how a Christian should appear in the world. Why talk about modesty now? Because the world is in great, great crisis. And I can never overemphasize that point. We are in a world, particularly in the Western world, which is in revolt against God. And in revolt against the very idea of God. And henceforth, we are in revolt against what is good, what is objectively good, true and beautiful. We live in a world now that extols vulgarity, coarseness, ugliness and sin. We are living in times now more dramatic than the times of Isaiah the prophet. When Isaiah the prophet in the 8th and 7th century BC said, commenting on the situation in his world at the time, where people were calling what was good evil and what was evil good. I believe we definitely live in not only similar but worse times today. In addition to the vulgarity and ugliness and coarseness, we also live in times of excess and license. License means that we've thrown off all inhibitions, cast off all rules and limits, and flaunting everything and revealing everything without restraint, without limit. Many of the evils in the world today that we as Christians, as Catholics, consider to be evil really have their origins in the remote origins in the abandonment of modesty. If you want to have a look at what we're going through, even the sexual abuse crisis in the church or sexual abuse in general in, in the family, between adults and children, between adults, male and female, where the pornographic culture, and I'll go into more detail about that soon enough as well, all has its origins in a slow and almost imperceptible movement away from modesty. 
Most people, when we talk about modesty, and it's okay to have this initial point, think about the need to be properly covered in our attire. So for many good people, the issue of modesty often relates to where do we draw the line? When I was a school teacher in school, I had the role as welfare coordinator or an old-fashioned talk, discipline coordinator, and part of it was to enforce uniform rules, regulations. Part of it for the girls was to determine what was right or wrong with the length of their skirts, for example. So for many, it's about where do we draw the hemline? Well, me and, and many of the other senior female staff were adamant that the hemline had to be below the knee. And to work out whether the hemline was appropriate or not, they got the girls to kneel down on the floor. And if they could, if they, if the skirt was touching the ground, it was okay. If it was higher than the knee, it wasn't okay. And also we have other you know, lines that need to be drawn around the upper parts of our body, particularly for females. Of course, that's part of the issue, but it's not the total issue. Sometimes there are, there's grey areas. It's not always that black and white. If it's below the line, it's okay. If it's above the line, it's not okay. Of course, we do have to have lines. But what I'm trying to emphasise is that it's not just about lines. Sometimes it might be a little bit shorter than, than, the, than the line prescribes. But I think God often, no, not often, always judges more the heart and the intention rather than simply where the line is drawn. I do want to... I'll go back to another point and bring in Our Lady of Fatima here. Our Lady of Fatima, we know, appeared over 100 years ago, back in 1917. It's almost 102 years now. There's one statement of Our Lady of Fatima that I have always remembered and always struck me deeply. And I think we need to be reminded about it urgently. When she said that she warned that fashions in the world will appear that will be greatly offensive to God. I have no doubt that this prediction or this prophecy has come to pass and came to pass long ago. Where did it start happening? When did it start happening? Who knows precisely. But I have no doubt it accelerated in the late 50s and the 60s, with the tsunami of the sexual revolution. For those today who are advocating modesty or a return to modesty, we need to be prepared to take the psychological and verbal blows that will come with being such an advocate. There are a lot, there's a lot of what we call now psychological warfare happening. Where good people are intimidated into silence or intimidated even to reverse their positions on a whole lot of areas relating to morality, sexual morality, the definition of the family, blah, blah, blah. I've seen too many people used to stand for one position and because of being embarrassed or being criticised in the media or fear of being unpopular or fear of losing the next election, they changed their position on issues. This was very prevalent in the last, say, five to ten years with respect to the same-sex marriage debate. So many politicians who are in Parliament, either state or federal, who were there, motivated from Catholic principles initially, stood up for the family as just one man with one woman, having children naturally, married, exclusive to all others, determined 
to remain married until death. They entered parliament with those positions and then later on they'll say, oh look, after much thought and consideration, I now am in favour of, say, same-sex relationships, same-sex marriage. I've seen it too often. It's because we allow ourselves to become cowardly. We allow ourselves to submit to the psychological onslaught that particularly comes from the media. If you're going to stand up for modesty today, you're going to be named, you're going to be called. You're going to be called terms like prudes. Some even in the church would call you Jansenists. Excessively moral. you got psychological disorders or hang-ups. You're obsessed with sex and you need to loosen up. Be prepared. The actual opposite is the case. We're not obsessed with sex. The church and her moral teachings on sexual morality is not obsessed with sex. It's obsessed with goodness, truth and beauty. Who or what is obsessed with sex is our modern culture and society. Do I need to tell you? We are living in a deluge of sexual imagery and immorality that's pushed in our faces constantly, always and everywhere through every media option or social media option that people are exposed to. What the church is doing and what good Catholics do is simply to remind ourselves or to remind society that sex is something good. It's beautiful. It comes from God. It's God, part of God's, it's core to God's plan for life and love. And, but it must have its proper context because it's powerful. It generates, it generates new life. We're all here because of it. And it generates human life which is intelligent and needs to be raised. And humans are the, of all mammals, are the most vulnerable and need the longest time to be raised by their parents who generated them. And therefore, we need sex to be in the context of a permanent relationship so that the fruit of that can be raised, deserves to have raising from those who generated it, mother and father. The crisis in modesty has accelerated, as I said, since the mid-20th century. Manifestations of this crisis include the following, and this is not an exhaustive list. This is just what I thought over about two minutes. We now, everywhere we go, we basically see young people doing or being encouraged to always wear less and show more. This can be manifested in so many different ways. Short shorts, skimpy skirts, tight tights, tops that reveal... I don't want to use the term because I think it's rather crude, but tops that just surround the breasts and reveal everything else. That's, that's one first aspect of immodesty in the world today. And it's not the worst by any means. The bikini culture is now standard. Bikini is a name for an island atoll in the Pacific where the United States used to test its nuclear and hydrogen bombs. <clears throat> Unfortunately, the bikini culture has exploded in another way since the 50s and 60s. And again, I'll be careful here, but... This is a process that happened over time. There's nothing wrong with going to the beach. There's nothing wrong with swimming at the beach. It's all good. It's all great, fun. But again, we need to be modest in how we dress. And the, we've, been, we've been conditioned to accept the bikini culture as normative and okay. When in actual fact, I personally believe it's, part, it's a big part of the problem that Our Lady of Fatima spoke about fashions appearing in the world that would be offensive to God. To dress that way is okay in the context of privacy between yourself and your spouse. 
That's where that level of unveiling should occur and only occur. Then we've got very common, you see this a lot in Europe. I don't know why in Europe more than anywhere else. But you have manifestations of mass nudity. You see it in Germany, you see it in France, you see it in Italy. Well, I have. Where people, normally as a form of so-called artistic expression, by the hundreds just gather at a particular place and they're all nude. Male and female. (coughs) Young and old adults. One great archbishop in the United States in the 20th century, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, said that the fingerprints of the diabolicals control over society are human sacrifice and nudity. We have a society that practices and promotes public nudity and practices human sacrifice. We have the domination of the devil over that society. And I agree with Archbishop Fulton Sheen on that point. Where do we have human sacrifice in our society today? It's the abortion culture. I watch carefully what's happening in the United States. Two new laws passed recently in New York State and Virginia now allow for infanticide. We not only have abortion since 1973 legalised as a constitutional right in the United States, and that decision in Roe versus Wade allowed for abortions up to three months. But since the Clinton administration and the Obama administration, the right to abortion was extended to nine months. And now these governors have introduced laws that if any child survives an attempted abortion and they've been born and they're living outside of the womb, those children can be terminated. That's infanticide now. And don't think it's going to stop there. That's human sacrifice. So again, my point was where you have a society where you have human sacrifice and you have mass nudity practice. Like the pagans, they are fingerprints of the diabolical's control over society. Where has immodesty manifested itself the most or most extensively through the pornographic culture. Bob Guccione and Hugh Hefner are now both dead. They've accounted for what they've done in this world. Hugh Hefner founded the Playboy Empire and Bob Guccione founded the penthouse industry. And we and mass nudity manifests itself also in mass pornography, where we mainstream pornography throughout the entire world. And of course, you go back 40 years ago and you found it in magazines and you could buy those magazines anywhere publicly without restraint. They mostly put them in petrol stations because they know the men will buy them from there. When I was in South America, you could buy them anywhere. In Australia now, you could buy it anywhere. But worse than that, of course, it's now accessible anytime, anywhere in your own home through the internet. And it is a plague upon society of unmeasurable proportions. I know from young people who sometimes come to speak to me for advice and from good priests that I know who talk in general terms about what they deal with in spiritual advice, counselling, or even in the confessional. Pornography is a plague upon the earth for our young people. And now it affects women as much as it does men. The extreme feminist movement in its determination to eradicate all distinction between the male and female, in its determination to make women more like men, are making women more like bad men, with all the vices of bad men, all the coarseness, vulgarity and brutality of bad men. And pornography feels, feeds that brutality. The immodesty of pornography not only makes men into brute beasts, 
but reduces the woman to simply being an object, objectifies the woman, dehumanizes the woman, makes the woman an object for the man's lust. Not love, there's no love here. It is just lust, looking at the other as an object for one's own pleasure. By the way, the pleasure is good. It's morally good in its proper context. But it's taking it out of its proper context so that the man or the female is just using the other for their own desire, own pleasure, but not wanting that person as a person, not wanting to commit, not wanting to serve, to sacrifice or to suffer for that other person, but just to use and abuse that other person. And then we have the immodest sex culture promoted in our music and music videos. It's rampant. And music video industry has a lot of responsibility here for corrupting young kids into a pornographic culture through music. Look, these mediums are inherently neutral, inherently good. Whether we talk about television or the movie industry or the music industry or social media or whatever, they are all inherently good. And we need to use these to promote goodness, truth and beauty, to promote the gospel, to promote the Catholic faith. But for some reason, the devil and his agents have an overwhelming dominance of the media. For what purpose? To corrupt humanity. And to subjugate humanity under his dominion, not the dominion of God, not the dominion of our Lord Jesus and the life of grace, but to tear away humanity from that life of grace and to reduce humanity to just simply being carnal creatures and enslaved, enslaved to their own appetites, passions and desires and enslaved therefore more remotely to the devil rather than being liberated and living in the, in the grace of the Holy Spirit. Then we have immodesty promoted. You could drive through any, down any road and you have big billboards and posters which just stick immodesty right into your face. Skimply clad women in bikinis or underwear or whatever. It's, it's semi-pornographic and it's just... Boom, right in your face as you're driving down Parramatta Road or any other main arterial road in any major city in, in any country around the world. And then you have immodesty in dance. I was looking at a video the other day. I was checking up on a teacher that I've encountered in my own work that I think has got great potential for the future. And part of my work in evangelization of teachers is that I want to identify future leaders and help young people to, to advance on the path of leadership in schools and religious leadership. Give, talk to them, give them advice, give them self-belief, give them confidence, show them the pathway through which you give them a 20-year plan. If they're in their 20s, you can be principal in your, by the time you're in your late 40s. And I identified a young woman recently who's got in, enormous ability intellect, skills, on top of everything. So I did an internet search on this person and I found that this person also works for a dance school. I won't name the dance school. And I looked at some of the work of this dance school and what I saw was massive immodesty. It's all girls. The instructors are male and female, young and old, mostly very attractive or very handsome instructors. But the, what they're training these young girls to become in the way they dress or lack of dress, in the way they dance, in their movements on stage and with each other, is highly immodest. It's over-sexualisation of girls at such a young age. It's a huge problem. The over-sexualisation of our children at such a young age, tender age, when they're not in any condition to be able to understand the true purpose of human sexuality and to practice that in an adult context, namely the sacrament of holy matrimony. 
Now, when humanity was created, we were created naked. We didn't have clothes. And we're not born with clothes. But when we look at the scripture data, the book of Genesis, the account there and the creation of man and woman, Adam and Eve, they were naked but without shame. Why? Because they didn't yet have the wound of original sin. When we rebelled against God, when our intellect, when our reason rebelled against God, God allowed every one of our lower appetites, passions, desires to rebel against reason. We lost what was called a preternatural gift. What's a preternatural gift? It's a gift that extended us so we could more easily live the life of virtue and holiness on earth. A supernatural gift is something like sanctifying grace. We have the very life of God in our souls, the blessed Trinity, the Holy Spirit living in our souls. It's a preparation for the life of glory in heaven. But a preternatural gift perfected us as humans on earth to more perfectly live virtuous lives on earth. And we had a gift called integrity, which brought about a unity between spirit and flesh. If our reason was subject to God, all our appetites, bodily appetites, were subject to reason. And that was God's original plan for us, to live in harmony between us and God, between man and woman, between humanity and nature, and harmony between flesh and the spirit within ourselves. But with our rebellion, we lost the gift of integrity. So now there's a tension, there's a conflict, even a war, and this is the language of St. Paul, between the flesh and the spirit. And we, but we don't want to make this flesh something bad. We're not Gnostics. The flesh is something good. But this wayward flesh needs to be tamed. And we can tame it. And we can, with God's grace, not through our own strength, But God's grace, we can tame it and subject it again, its appetites to reason. That's what saints achieved. That's why we had the tradition in the church of fasting, of doing penance. Some of the penances in the history of the saints were quite severe, probably more than they needed. But this was what the purpose of all this was to subject the flesh back under the dominion of the spirit. And therefore re-establish that internal interior peace and harmony that comes from a life of grace. To allow grace, to allow the Holy Spirit to once again dominate. So that we're not under the dominion of the flesh and under the dominion of Lucifer as a consequence. But under the dominion of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit and under the dominion of God. As children of God, as brothers and sisters of Christ. So to assist in this process... That's why we need to be properly veiled. Now, I want to emphasize something here, very important. Here's a criticism that you might face. You know, you Catholics, you want to cover everything up because you think sex is bad. You think that the human body is bad. You think that the sexual organs are bad. That's your problem. You think those things are bad when they're not bad. That's why you want to cover them up. Actually, it's the other way around. We want to cover them up. We want to veil them because they're good. Because sex is good and holy, but powerful. Our bodies are good. Hey, our bodies are going to rise from the dead at the end of the world. You know, when you say the creed, we believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. We're not going to be in heaven just as our souls. We're going to be in heaven, body and soul in a glorified, resurrected body. And you're going to have that glorified, resurrected body because you receive the Eucharist. Christ said, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him and I will raise you up on the last day. So you're going to be in heaven with our bodies. And we know that our bodies are therefore good. But because we're under the, uh, the we, we possess the wound of original sin, our bodies are now untamed. And we just simply want to tame them and bring them back under the subjection of the spirit. 
Not to demonize the body or to repress the body's appetites, passions and desires, but to regulate them according to reason. That's why we need to practice modesty in dress. To veil what is good, to preserve the good and to practice that good in its proper context, which again is holy matrimony. We need a counter-revolution to restore the proper understanding of the human body of human sexuality, the goodness of human sexuality, the goodness of the distinction between male and female, the necessity of the differences between male and female that make us attractive to each other and complementary for each other. And we need to restore marriage. The prayer we said today, the commentary we had today at the beginning, marriage is under attack. Because the devil wants to destroy marriage in the world. Because that's the way to destroy the church. When you destroy this hall, let's destroy this hall one brick at a time and we'll destroy this hall. So let's destroy the church by one brick at a time, every family. Let's destroy every family one at a time. And if you don't, if you think maybe this is an exaggeration, I want to tell you a story from 21 years ago. We run a group for talks at St. Michael's Belfield. We had our first one for this year last night. That's why I couldn't be here. The first talk for 1998 was a priest from England who used to be mediocre in his faith but had a big conversion when he visited a Marian shrine in Europe. And he said he used to be a hospital chaplain and he used to eat in the cafeteria. And one day he noticed a couple of nurses who'd always sit with each other They'd eat together, but sometimes they didn't eat. And this was a regular pattern. So he thought, are these nurses perhaps, are they fasting? Maybe they're fasting for religious reason. Maybe they're Catholic. Hmm, I'm curious. So one day he went up to them and joined them for lunch. He said, ladies, how are you? I noticed that sometimes when you get together, you don't eat lunch. You seem to be fasting. Are you Catholic by any chance? He said, no. We're not Catholic, but we are fasting. We're actually witches, and we're fasting for the intention of offering that fasting up for the destruction of Christian marriages. The priest was stunned. When I heard that, I was stunned. I was sitting in the back of the room thinking, my goodness. I was stunned at the, the, the level of the evil of intent, but I was also stunned at their determination for their cause. Where's our determination for our cause in comparison to that? Where's our prayer and fasting for the restoration of marriage in the world? Authentic marriage. Holy matrimony. Sacramental marriage. Marriage with God in the core, in the heart of it. Marriage where we live for each other, husband and wife, to serve to sacrifice and to suffer for each other, to get each other to heaven, to raise children as future citizens of heaven. Where is that now in the world being taught? Where is that now in the world being lived? That's what we have to fight for. That's what's under attack. When we're having pseudo-marriage being promoted and we're having Oh yeah, let's, let's support everything. Let's support, let's allow people to have sex before marriage. Allow people to have sex with whoever they want, anytime they want. As many times they want with anyone or anything. It's okay to have divorce. Let people have their freedom. We glorify public figures who have left their wives, left their children, and now go off with some young blonde bombshell 20, 30 years younger than themselves. And I'll be public here because this is in the public realm. Sad to say, I know people like politicians like Tony Burke and Barnaby Joyce. I don't know Carl Stefanovic and I don't know Wayne Bennett. But I know that three of them, Wayne Bennett, Barnaby Joyce and Tony Burke, were Catholics, practising Catholics. One of them was a daily mass goer. The two politicians I knew because they used to come to my school and I invited Barnaby Joyce to speak at the University of Sydney Chaplaincy in 2006. They all went into this for Catholic reasons. Now they've all left their wives. They ran off with other women. They dumped their children. 
And the media celebrates it. How many times do you see stories celebrating Carl Stefanovic with his new blonde bombshell? Barney Rejoice has got his second baby coming. The second Barney baby. This is an atrocity. Our culture today celebrates the destruction of marriages and think it's okay for men or women, but these are all men in this example, to go dump their wives, dump their children and go off with someone else. If that's not crisis in the world, then we are blind to what crisis is. I can't judge these men in their interior, only God will, but I can judge the actions externally as scandalous. So, we must affirm the goodness of sexual desire and sex as core to God's plan for love and life. Sexual desire is strong and powerful and implanted by God for our happiness and the perpetuation of the human race. We are veiling to preserve sex for its proper context. Modesty protects and reinforces the mystery of man and woman. For me, I don't know about you, but for me, I find a woman more attractive the more she's covered, not less. Because for some reason, the more a woman is covered, the more it accentuates her mystery and her attractiveness. It highlights the differences that render man and woman attractive and in need of each other. It maintains the awe we should have for each other. We're meant to be looking at each other. The man and woman is a great mystery in God's creation. Man and woman bound to each other and fruitful in children reflects the Trinity. Man and a woman, when they see each other for the first time, and properly veiled, reveals mystery, but also should draw from us awe for the other. We should look at the other with awe. Wow. Like when Adam saw Eve for the first time, he would have said, I don't know what language. wouldn't have been English. But he would have said, wow. And we're meant to say, wow. Because there's nothing wrong with this. This is good. This is magnificent. And that's why we veil to preserve, accentuate the mystery. And for, for us to desire to know more, to build on that awe. But immodesty unveils what ought to be unveiled only within the security. What is good, what needs to be unveiled, must be unveiled, but only in the security of a protected, permanent and grace context of holy matrimony. We unveil only in that context. Because when we unveil and we reunite with each other in that sexual union, which is beautiful, but it's powerful and it generates new life, that must, that unveiling and that generation must happen only in this context, which is a protected, permanent and grace context. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2521 states, defines modesty as refusing to unveil what should remain hidden, but can, but needs to be revealed in this context of holy matrimony. Unveiling outside of the context of holy matrimony, which happens all the time, everywhere now, and is actually promoted and extolled, exposes one to another's lust, and the insecurity of being used, humiliated, rejected and abandoned. That's in the name of freedom, that's what we're doing to, to ourselves. By unveiling what we should keep veiled, we are subjecting others to temptation. We forget about this. When we dress modestly, if I go to football sometimes, I'm there to see football. I'm not there to see cheerleaders incredibly skimply dressed. I mean, incredibly attractive women. The attraction is good. But I'm married. I want to be faithful to my wife. I don't want to have my eyes turned to look at these very, very beautiful women. And the beauty is good, but there's too much unveiled. 
It's a temptation to those in the audience watching. But we, this is what we've lost. We don't consider that seriously as temptation anymore. It's part of the fun. It's great to have a look at women who are semi-naked. It's, you know, it's part of the furniture of our culture and society. What's wrong with you, Robert? You're just a prude. Right? You're a Jansenist. You've got hang-ups. Get over it. Loosen up, as I said earlier. But we forgot about the sin of scandal. What's the sin of scandal? Is when I do something that leads someone else to sin. By bad example or particular action. So when I have responsibility as a father in the family or a teacher in the classroom or a politician or any other leader, I, my role is to help sanctify, to raise people in God, in Christ. I could grievously abuse that power, that function, that role, if instead of leading people to virtue and God, I lead people to sin. And a modest dress does that. It, it's, you reveal too much and you become a temptation and cause others to sin. What does Jesus say about the sin of scandal? One of the most severe words we read in the gospel that Christ ever utters is for those who commit scandal, who cause young people to sin. Better if they have a millstone placed around their neck. Have you been to the Middle East and seen a millstone? How big and heavy they are? They'll crush you to death if it falls on you. Christ says it's better to have a millstone put around your neck and be dumped into the bottom of the ocean than to cause one of these young innocent ones to sin. We need to be our brother's and sister's keeper and not entice our brother or sister to sin. We need to have an awareness of how we appear before others. But at the same time, is okay, Robert, you're a bit too much here maybe. You're extreme. No, we, there are extremes. I hope I'm not extreme, but there are extremes. The burqa or the niqab, which veils the woman completely head to toe so you don't see any, is an extreme, it's an obvious extreme. I hope I'm not about extremes. As a man, it's great to see beautiful women because they're created by God. The beauty is from God and reflects God. He wants man and woman to be attractive to each other. It's okay to show beauty, but remember, let's remind ourselves about what St. Paul and St. Peter said. Your greatest beauty really is your virtue, not your external appearance. But the external appearance, the beauty is good. So it's great to show beauty, but not er don't eroticize it. The erotic side is meant to be revealed only in the context of holy matrimony. Very importantly, though, to come back to a point I said earlier, modesty is not just about where we draw the hemline, okay? It's part of the picture, but only a, a, one part of many other parts. Modesty applies also to how we move and present our bodies. So I could be dressed like this, very modest, okay, Robert? But how I might move my body, upper and lower parts of my body, how I dance in front of others is also important. We're going to be very immodest in how we move, what parts of our body we accentuate in our movements. We can be immodest in our affections. We need to be affectionate. We need to express that to others. Some cultures uh, do it better than others. I think the Mediterranean world does it better than the Anglo-Saxon world, how we uh, you know, illustrate our affections for each other. I'm married, I'll kiss my wife on the lips. I don't kiss other women on the lips. If I was to kiss other women, it would be on the cheeks as a kiss of friendship. Okay? I have colleagues at work, I do that too. But we have to be careful how we give our affections to others so that the giving, so the giving of an affection to someone else is not immodest. Our words and conversations... I don't like swear words and I don't like words and comments that have obvious sexual connotation. Words like that 
words with sexual connotation again are only meant to be are meant to be veiled and only unveiled in the context of marriage. So, in modesty pertains to how we speak. I don't like sexual jokes. I think they're vulgar and depraved. I can't imagine St. Peter, St. Paul, any of the apostles, Our Lady, St. Joseph, any of the saints in the history of the church that told sexual jokes. Now, when I've, what I'm saying now, I've been told, oh, Robert, you're a Jansenist. I don't, I don't believe I'm a Jansenist. I think the people who call me a Jansenist have the problem. I don't know if any saint, and you're welcome to tell me in question time, any saint that went around saying crude sexual jokes. And our thoughts too must be modest. What happens here, this is where the real battlefield here is. What's happening in our minds, in our heads? If we're modest here, we'll be modest in the way everything else we do. Modesty does not enslave, it liberates us. We, we look at liberation now, it's taking everything off, throwing everything off. Nakedness, nudity, it's liberation. The sexual revolution was about liberation, lies. The sexual revolution, the most destructive revolution in history, that revolution that aims to undo everything about the Jesus revolution. The Jesus revolution is a revolution of humility, truth, goodness, beauty, modesty, fidelity, love, self-sacrifice. That's the Jesus revolution. The sexual revolution is aiming to destroy, to undo everything that Jesus brought into the world. The sexual revolution preached freedom. It, it, it really preached preach license. And that's not freedom. We become slaves. The sexual revolution has enslaved humanity in its own lust, in its own passions, and destroyed everything in the process. Destroyed fidelity to God, fidelity to Christ, fidelity to church teaching, fidelity between spouses, fidelity between parents and children. Destroy the extended family, destroy the nuclear family, and it's destroying the, the, the <clears throat> distinction between male and female. It's destroying everything. And it hasn't finished yet, I assure you. Modesty should be seen as an, not as an imposition, but as a voluntary loving sacrifice that waits to give the gift of self to the beloved at the most appropriate time, in the most appropriate context. If humanity were to rediscover the virtue of modesty, to veil what should be veiled until the appropriate time, and to unveil as a gift to the other in the context of holy matrimony, the world would be changed overnight and changed only for the better. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation brought to you by Perusia. Perusia is an Australian-based apostolate bringing you the best in Catholic formation resources. Visit the website at www.perusiamedia.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.